is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Breaking news, multiple reports saying the L.A. County DA's office is not going to charge Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer with sexual assault. This comes after a months-long review of a Pasadena police investigation. A woman who said he had two sexual encounters with Bauer claimed he assaulted her. We have legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Lou Shapiro on the line with us now. He is not, by the way, connected to the case. Lou, thanks for being with us. So, uh, of course, this is breaking news. We don't know quite yet exactly the thinking of the DA's office, but what can you tell us about uh, the apparent outcome? Well, I can tell you people that have been following this case very closely did not find this outcome to come as a surprise. Uh, The reason being is because as the evidence was released slowly over time, it showed that the, the accused or the accuser was producing uh, pictures of text messages and, and correspondence between herself and friends, almost making light of the situation. You couple that with the fact that she went back to Bauer's house voluntarily after she said the first time she was physically assaulted by him. The argument that Bauer's defense lawyers were making was probably, well, if she was so afraid of him uh, and she was hurt by him and she didn't want to be hurt by him, Uh, Why did she go back a second time? Uh, And then we saw that she did not prevail in the civil uh, harassment or DVRO restraining hearing, that the civil judge said she didn't find there was enough evidence there to issue a restraining order. So it seemed like it was getting this way. It just took a long time. So what happens now? I guess she can pursue something civilly, but also Bowers Camp has been thinking about going after Pasadena PD and issuing some subpoenas to them because they're not happy with how this whole process played out, and then he could still face disciplinary action from the MLB. But like you said, as this has gone on, it seems like the case uh, that she had is completely different from what was being talked about at the start. Right. And look, and let's be honest, uh, it's very tough if you're the Dodgers organization or you're the MLB, even with the fact that uh, in the end he's not being criminally charged and, and the restraining order was not issued because there is a lot of disturbing evidence. I think everybody will agree that there's, there's just a lot of, of things that are just un, unsavory and, and uncomfortable, and, and people are conflicted. You know, we want him to pitch. He's a great pitcher, but on the, on the other hand, there's a court of public opinion that does not approve uh, maybe of this conduct, uh, and that's where the subpoenas come in. Uh, they're going to try to obtain any information they can to further show the Dodgers organization and the MLB and maybe even the public that what everyone was being told at the beginning is not in fact what the reality is. Legal analyst, criminal defense attorney uh, Lou Shapiro on the line with us uh, for the breaking news. The report said the L.A. County DA's office not just going to charge Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer with sexual assault. Back on In Depth, were you up very, very early this morning when the Oscar nominations were announced? They do it at like 5 or 6 in the morning. Uh, some snubs, uh, some surprises, and we're going to talk about all that right now as we uh, kick off the show. Yes, yeah, so with us now is Clayton Davis, who is the uh, Film Awards editor for Variety and co-host of Variety's The Take. Clayton, thanks for being with us. So let's quickly go through the uh, snubs and the, uh, well, we kind of thought it was going to happen. Well, that's a little bit of a combo question because I predicted uh, that Lady Gaga could miss for House of Gucci. Many people assumed that she was safe. However, she ended up missing out. And it's probably the shock of the day in the general public because she's the only actress in that category that landed every single 
televised award show nomination and now she's not even there so that was you know quite a shock especially since she did so much campaigning but uh, for me it was Denny Villeneuve missing best director for Dune that film received 10 nominations nominated in every single technical category only the sixth film in history to do that but Denny Villeneuve was missing from best director he's the first director to miss that category after landing all the other nominations and then we talk about what they liked and that was power of the dog and they like that a lot oh my god yes power of the dog overperformed today you know in addition to, i predicted i predicted it to get about nine nominations it pulled in an extra nomination for jesse Plemons, so four actors were nominated and it pulled in some extra things like production design and sound this all leads me to believe that netflix may have finally arrived with the film that could win them their first best picture statue because they've been chasing it for years. Now, of course, throughout the years, as, as you know, a lot of these nominations, who gets it and who doesn't get it, depends on, you know, lobbying. You were mentioning Lady Gaga lobbying, apparently not very effectively. But mm -hmm. in, in other cases, uh, take the power of the dog. Is it such a great movie or did the company behind it just really do a bang up job in promoting it? Uh, it's both, you know, like so I love Power of the Dog and it's, it's my top uh, two of the year. I, I, I love the film. It's directed and written by Jane Campion, who is a legend in her own right. However, it's not for everyone. It is divisive within some that see it. Some see it as a very slow burn. And, you know, it's not going to have an easy road to a Best Picture win. But, you know, with 12 nominations and something like Belfast, pulling in seven or King Richard pulling in six, but not best director, you know, it, ha it really does have all the goods right now to win best picture, but it depends on what kind of mood the Academy's in. They like lighter films uh, lately. You know, I don't know if they're going to jump in for a dark Western. All right, real quick. We can't do it justice in the time we have, unfortunately, but tell me a little bit about flea because it's set a record in like a weird kind of combo way. Oh, I love it so much. Uh, it is the first animated, it's an animated documentary. It's the first film to be nominated, to be nominated in an animated documentary and international feature representing Denmark. Uh, I think it was really close in best picture. That is a huge get for neon and hopefully will allow more documentaries to sneak into other races outside of its conventional categories. Clayton Davis, film awards editor for variety co-host of the take right now, the Olympic freestyle skier, Eileen Gu is getting a lot of love and hate, depending on whom you talk to and in which country. She was born in San Francisco. She's an American, but she's competing in the Olympics for China. She even won a gold medal. Now, that has some people in the U.S. very upset, but after she said she was competing for China, a lot more endorsement deals started rolling in. Jonathan Jensen is a sports marketing expert and professor of sport administration at the University of North Carolina. Jonathan, thanks for being with us so i guess uh what money uh, wins the day huh well um gu actually said that it's more about growing the sport um in china um which is where her mother was born and she spent a lot of time uh, over the years and it's so it's less about money it's more about um kind of being able to make more of an impact um is is what she's said in terms of the rationale behind that decision but we can't just divorce it from the fact that after she did start going for China and, and over the last, what, couple of years or something, she has had these deals that, that didn't seem like they were there before. And look, I mean, 
Olympic skiers can get endorsements, but it's not like a huge payday like some other sports. So sometimes you do go where the money is. Yeah, there's no doubt she's done very, very well, both, um, you know, on, on the, uh, the ski jumps as well as off of it. I think um, when you look at it from a marketing lens, uh, marketing is all about authenticity. And, um, you know, I think, I think it would be a big issue from a marketing marketer's perspective if um, she wasn't raised by a single mother who's from China and she had spent a considerable amount of time in China. So she's immersed into kind of both cultures. She speaks, um, you know, fluent Mandarin. Um, uh, so, you know, it's a little different from say, there's, there's been a lot of soccer players who, you know, might've had a, a distant relative that's from a particular country. So they choose to compete for that national team. You know, she really does kind of have a dual identity and, um, you know, that's somewhat reflective of kind of the society that we live in today. It's just a hundred years ago, someone might have one, you know, I, uh, uh, both Irish and Italian identity. She just happens to have, you know, Chinese and American identity. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how common or uncommon is it for an American national to, in the Olympics, compete uh, for another country's team? Sure. It's, it's actually very, very common, uh, but not typically with China. Um, you know, China is more, you know, I'm not a, uh, an expert on the Chinese culture, but I have been to Asia and and I've studied things from a sports marketing perspective, and they have a very homogeneous culture, meaning, you know, everybody there is is pretty much Chinese. So they, this is a recent phenomenon in terms of, um, you know, uh, having athletes you know, compete for China. She's not the only one at the Olympics that's doing that, but it is very common with other countries. It's just a newer phenomenon uh, within China, if that makes sense. Is it also more common if you are thinking that maybe you're not going to make the U.S. team or maybe you you will, but you're not going to be a medalist? Maybe people are sore about this because she won a gold medal and they're thinking, hey, she could have won that for us and not them. Yeah, it's definitely not the case in which she's competing for China because she wouldn't make it within the U.S. She's one of the top athletes in the world in her sport. So um, she's not gaming the system um, from that perspective. And, and the ski and, uh, the U.S. Ski and, and Snowboard Association has kind of supported her through, throughout. Should, would they rather her be competing for the U.S.? Of course. But um, again, I, I think it's less of an issue given that she she has a Chinese mother. She spent a lot of time in China growing up, uh, even though she does live in the U.S. and she's going to be after the Olympics, you know, attending university here in the United States, which, you know, millions of Chinese students do anyway. Jonathan Jensen, sports marketing expert, professor, sports administration, University of North Carolina. Coming up, the pandemic could be contributing to a recent surge in broken heart syndrome. Right now, though, COVID and exposure, we all can kind of probably assume it's come towards us at some point. Maybe we breathe some in, you know, living life, going outside in a pandemic. You've probably come up against COVID. So you're wondering, why haven't I ever tested positive? What is this doing to my immune system? There are scientists who are wondering if maybe it's helping. Maybe it's not. Dr. Nicole Baumgartz is a professor of immunology, the Center for Immunology and Infectious Diseases up at UC Davis. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So, yeah, based on that premise that maybe most of us have come across COVID at some point, what do we know about what that means for us and our immune systems? Yeah, so it's obviously difficult to know whether when you're exposed to the virus, uh, whether you actually, and you don't have any symptoms, whether you got infected to a low level or whether you didn't get infected. 
but overall, um, a small measure of exposure to the virus that doesn't make us sick might, could, uh, under certain circumstances, help our immune system to remind the immune system to make more antibodies. Um, now, I wouldn't recommend to use that as an excuse to go out there without mask and exposing ourselves because we don't know what the level of the immune response is that we actually have. Um, but this constant reminder, uh, having uh, the virus around can actually be good for the immune system to get little boosts. Well, I mean, I mean, is it uh, logical to presume that the uh, virus has been so pervasive, you know, depending on what variant, but certainly the Omicron variant, so pervasive that, you know, unless you've been living hermetically sealed in your house, that you've probably, most people have been exposed to it over and over mm -hmm. again, right? Yeah, that's, again, that's sort of a little bit hard to know, but I would agree that um, many of us have been exposed and not everybody who has been exposed gets sick, right? This is why there are some recommendations that you shouldn't be unmasked indoors with, close to somebody for 15 minutes, right? This 15 minutes. Um, it's because there is this idea that just having a, a little bit of virus in the atmosphere might not be enough to effectively infect us, but that is really more to do with uh, the ability of the virus to get in every single time it sees a human being. Right? So, um, and of course, it can also have to do with the fact that we now have, many of us have pre-existing immunity, either because we have been affected before or we have gotten some vaccine. Yeah, so if we take that uh, as kind of the baseline, vaccinated and, and even better boosted, or maybe mm -hmm. you got this and then you recovered, that kind of leads us back to what you were saying before, that maybe when you see this out in the world, it's kind of like it keeps you primed, right? Because especially like if you're in a high-risk job or something, or people are coming by all the time, well, a little bit here and there, you're going to remember, and it's going to maybe keep you tuned up. Yes, if the virus can see the cells of the immune system, right, which are not sitting on top of our um, airways, but they're sitting inside. But we have cells that can actually grab into the airways and can grab antigen as well. So under the right circumstances, uh, that can definitely provide a boost. And it is probably the basis on which uh, some um, in, in the earlier days, when we had a lot of measles outbreak, for example, um, we had a highly effective vaccine, right? And, um, and it is now understood that some of the exposure, uh, repeated exposure of the children to measles, which at the time was very prevalent, probably helped the immune system uh, in addition to the vaccine, right? The vaccine stopped you from making you clinically sick. Uh, but then having this exposure um, helped you for the immune system to uh, remind itself to keep making these antibodies because the immune system is not very good at remembering things that it saw a very long time ago for most antigens, not all of them, um, because we want to have the immune system primed against what's currently in our environment uh, so that we have the right kind of immunity. What about people who, you know, you were talking about short exposure repeatedly to the virus, but then you had these mysterious cases, maybe not so mysterious, of, you know, families where one person comes down with uh, COVID mm. and they're, you know, sick as a dog and yeah. everybody else in the household is fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that there are some things we don't understand. Is it that this person had some previous exposure, maybe um, had infection, but didn't get sick, clinically sick. So 
getting infected and getting sick are two quite different things. Um, often um, uh, that goes hand in hand, you get infected, then you get sick, then you recover. Uh, but sometimes an infection, if your immune system is very, very primed, you might be able to get away and you may just feel down for a day or so. And you wouldn't even know that you had a low level infection uh, if, you, if you have a really strong immune response. Uh, so doing, you know, knowing that difference in a non-experimental setting, a setting is, is really difficult. Dr. Nicole Baumgart, professor of immunology up there at UC Davis. You know how she said that the immune system is not very good at remembering just, things in I the past? Exactly what you thought probably yeah, was. Yeah, because I don't, I, don't either. I don't remember things in the past either. You need a little prime every now and then. Did we do a show yesterday? I think so. I think so too, but I'm not 100% yes, sure. Yes, and it was great. Oh, yeah, now right? I remember. Uh-huh. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Johnson & Johnson reportedly stopped making its COVID vaccine late last year when it shut down the only plants making usable batches of it. New York Times says they did this so the facility there could focus on making an experimental, but potentially more profitable vaccine for a totally different virus. Well, the shutdown is only temporary, but this comes as Johnson & Johnson has fallen behind on deliveries to developing countries that badly need vaccines. Dr. Bruce Y. Lee is executive director of public health informatics, computational and operations research, and a professor at the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. Thanks for being with us, doctor. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which kind of fell out of favor in this country because more people have been vaccinated with the messenger messenger. RNA ones, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, is still the foremost vaccine around the world, isn't it? Yeah, it's still very valuable because the fact that it's it can del deliver protection in just one dose and, and requires just two doses for a booster. And also, it doesn't have the same storage requirements that the uh, Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine have. So it's a lot easier to transport and store and administer. So what? We hope that J&J &J says they have enough in storage to get them through this uh, period where they're not making it and then they can make more? Or have they even said anything about that? Because we're still kind of in this race to, look, we've got our own problems here with vaccination levels. But you really want to get a whole bunch of the world population vaccinated in the next you know, spring and summer months um, so we can hopefully stave off more variants. Yeah, absolutely. We have to remember that this is a global thing. This is a worldwide thing. So it's not enough for us to just control the virus. Uh, we, you know, all the countries around the world need to be able to control this. Otherwise, we might have a ping pong effect where the where the uh, virus just keeps spreading back and forth between different countries. So it's really important to keep everyone protected. I'm curious because uh, if you'd look at, say, two companies, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, one would have thought if any of the two, if either of the two were going to have an issue pumping out large numbers of COVID vaccines, it might have been Moderna because I think their vaccine is the first time they've actually had a, a commercial product uh, on the market. And Johnson & Johnson, of course, is a company with a very rich history. Why is Johnson & Johnson repeatedly failing so badly on this? Yeah, this has been surprising. And, and, and one of the concerns is that when you hear news like this, you don't hear news of what's going to be set up alternatively. Like what 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 are the plans? Uh, you don't want to hear a situation where production is being shut down in one place. But then, you know, what's going to happen with production elsewhere? Uh, so this is this is a significant issue. And, and we really need to get to the bottom of what's going to happen. Do you think that maybe they just think that 
you know, some of the other shots that have been developed are going to take over for this. But it doesn't make a lot of sense from, you know, at least this perspective looking in, because, again, this is the one that they can make a lot of if they choose to. And it's easy to get places. Yeah, it's clear that there's a shortage of vaccines around the world. If you look at a lot of places, a lot of countries around the world, they don't have the access to vaccines that we do. Um, so they would be happy to have more vaccines. We're really dealing with a shortage. So any amount of production, especially a vaccine that is so conveniently stored and administered um, is needed. So yeah, there's no really no reason to to not continue production. The... Um... The shortage of, of the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, uh, because the messenger RNA ones require that, that deep freeze, right, in order to transport and to, to store, I would imagine then it's unrealistic. That sort of is, is a, a sort of a sequel to Mike's question. Uh, there's no way that they could sort of increase dramatically, I suppose, their uh, output. And then because of the freezing issues, would it be unrealistic for them to try to fill in the gaps left by Johnson & Johnson? Well, there's certainly need for vaccines, period. So the, uh, as m much as any manufacturers can really increase their production, that will be helpful for the world. But but you're absolutely correct that there's there are limitations. So places that just don't have the deep freezing capabilities uh, won't be able to support the mRNA vaccines and therefore could benefit uh, from the J&J vaccines. And so there are many places around the world that don't have the uh, freezer capacity. They don't even have standard freezers in many cases. So um, the mRNA vaccines can fill the gap to some degree, but we still need the J&J vaccines. Dr. Bruce Y. Lee, Executive Director, Public Health Informatics, Computational Operations Research Professor at the CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. Well, I'm sure you've heard the expression broken heart. It's used in a figurative sense when things like a breakup happen, but can it be literal? Broken heart syndrome, a real stress-induced heart condition. Researchers at Cedars-Sinai elsewhere have noticed a sharp increase in these cases since the pandemic began, impacting women more than men. Dr. Noel Barry Mers is director of the Barbara Streisand Heart Center at uh, Cedars. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So let's lay the groundwork for what this is and what happens. And I think what it, it is always affected uh, women more than men, and it took a while for it to be you know, realized and talked about as something that is actually happening. That's all correct. And part of the reason we're talking about it now, in addition to the pandemic, is that we're finally studying women. Uh, the NIH um, tells us that we have to include women if we're going to uh, study something that equally impacts women and men, which is heart disease. So um, we're learning a lot more about it. More is being reported partly because it's being recognized it is considered a stress-related trigger. It is uh, over 90% women. Uh, the majority are emotional stress, um, illness, death of a loved one, um, a frightening, you know, horrible event happening. But in men, which it's not, you know, it's not, it is reported in men, more often physical stressors, maybe competing in a triathlon, um, having a very serious infection, um, being in intensive care. So we're learning a lot about it, and um, hopefully the pandemic will not continue to provide us with <laughs> lots of uh, patients to study. Um, it's, it's related to uh, surges of adrenaline, and some people react in this adverse way, and many people don't. Uh, it's not 
super common, so people don't need to be too afraid or alarmed. Um, and the reason we're studying it now is, of course, to identify uh, ways of predicting risk and, most importantly, how best to treat it. I mean, is there an analogous situation before the pandemic when we saw this happening? Yes. In fact, um, this recent publication we tracked um, using a big national database um, through, up through uh, before the pandemic. So the rise in reportable cases really uh, pre-pandemic simply had to do with increased recognition. It really wasn't described until about 15 years ago. So um, physicians don't report things that they don't, they don't know what it is, right? It's a one-off. Yeah. And the name kind of works, right? Because, you know, yeah. you, 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 you can have a broken heart and it's an emotional stressor. And then literally, like, it is not pumping the right way. It is, it is broken in some fashion. I mean, what happens that we know about that, that leads people to, to, what, go to ERs thinking they're having a heart attack? It feels like a heart attack. Um, it's a severe cases. It's they're in shock. Um, the you know paramedics bring them in. They look very bad. Um, but it turns out the majority of the time, the arteries uh, providing the blood supply to the heart muscle are open. So it's not a real heart attack. The heart muscle is stunned uh, in a and, and dysfunctional, as you say, in a very stereotypical way. So if we do that echocardiogram or we shoot a ventriculogram when we're doing the, the cath, uh, we see this. Uh, and it's why it's called takotsubo, which is the Japanese term for octopus pot. And that's what it looks like. Uh, so that's how it got its name. And the treatment? So the treatment initially is supportive, of course. Um, the majority of folks that survive will recover often within days to weeks of that pumping function. The reason to study it, number one, is it has anywhere from a 10 to 20% recurrence rate. So we would like to prevent that um, because each one of these episodes can be life-threatening. Um, and then number two, uh, up to half, uh, particularly the women, uh, will have what we call long-term uh, effects, and they will uh, report fatigue, they have shortness of breath, they have uh, effort intolerance, you know, they just can't climb the stairs or they have to rest all the time. Uh, even though the heart pumping function uh, visibly appears normal, um, in our cardiac MRI and our sophisticated imaging at Cedars-Sinai, uh, we're detecting that actually that heart muscle is not normal. Um, and so we're going to need to figure that out and, again, uh, come up with innovative treatment uh, for that problem. Is this also some sort of lesson on, you know, heart-brain connections? Very much so. And, um, uh, you know, we as cardiologists, we think that the heart is the most important single organ in your body, but it's actually the brain and the brain controls everything, and these uh, what we call adrenergic or um, you know catecholamine storms. Adrenaline is probably the best lay term. These storms in relation to either the emotional or the physical stress um, are stunning the heart muscle and and causing that in some people and not others. And then even though it looks like they bounce back, we need to understand that residual damage. And our current imaging techniques you get in, you know, the doctor's office just don't pick that up. So uh, we hope um, with these future studies to be able to identify the nature of the damage, 
um, and, uh, you know, start to talk about things that can improve it. I mean, even things like stem cells. Yeah. On a more simplistic level, lots of people, of course, nowadays, they have all these apps to keep track of what their heart is doing. Would that be helpful? Potentially. One of the grants that we have under review right now uh, at our National Institutes of Health is to do remote monitoring and then using artificial intelligence to understand patterns um, with those remote monitors. And we call it research, right, because we don't really know if it works. Um, but that would be sort of the concept is uh, with better what we call also precision medicine, right? Just what is going on with that patient at that time? Uh, will we gain a better understanding of what the problem is and therefore what would be some effective treatments? Dr. Noel Barry Mers, director of the Barbara Streisand Heart Center at Cedars-Sinai. Doctor, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Super Bowl always has money coming into Vegas and other sports books. Uh, this year, the American Gaming Association estimating a record number of Americans will wager more than $7.5 billion on the game. All kinds of bets. Who's going to win straight up? Who's going to cover the spread? Which team's going to win the coin toss? One bet of more than $522,000 <laughs> at Caesars Sportsbook already. It was already. you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was me. I, had, I admit it was me. I, I had a few extra dollars, <laughs> and I thought, what the heck? Uh, but that bet has moved the point spread. Adam Pullen is the assistant director of trading for Caesars Sportsbook. So uh, $522,000, huh? Yeah, quite a sizable wager, but again, not uh, not surprising for a Super Bowl. It's the biggest game of the year in this uh, in this country, and uh, wagers like that do happen quite frequently on it. So, probably the first of uh, many of that size uh, to come through the windows in the next few days. Yeah, I was going to say, what does it get like as we get closer and closer day by day? Uh, as we get closer, probably from about tomorrow on, I think the hype really starts to heat up. Uh, the public starts to get more involved, betting all the props, betting the game itself. Uh, you know, just a slow buildup, even though there's two weeks uh, and a lot happens in those two weeks. Uh, the public betting usually ramps up about now. So uh, from today on, uh, it'll get bigger and bigger uh, as we move forward to the game. Is there a record? Is there a record amount of handles? A, a record bet. Oh, record bet. Uh, we actually took a $4.5 million wager on uh, the Bengals to win outright. Really? Uh, wow. So, yeah, that's been the biggest bet so far. Probably unlikely to get top. Uh, but, yeah, that's the biggest bet we've taken so far. So, as of right now, uh, you might say that we're a little bit of a uh, Rams fans. But, again, uh, we'll see what happens. There's plenty more bets to come in. And uh, with all the different states, uh, that Caesars operates in, and sports betting is proliferated throughout the country, uh, the handle is going to be uh, bigger than it's ever been, and I think that's going to be the case for years to come. Yeah. Sports betting will expand. Yeah, this has been going up every year, and is that part of the thing, that there's more places, more states, uh, that more more betting can actually happen now? And and you know what? They're going to run ads during the Super Bowl, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true, but no, it's just it's growing and growing. I mean, we just added New York, which is now the most populous state where sports betting is legalized. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger with more states uh, likely to join on uh, in the months to come. Do you have any idea, like, what kinds of people are motivated to make big bets, not like the small, petty ones? Well, I mean, it depends. Everybody's got their own situation. 
you know, the more money a person has, the more money they can spend on a wager on the game. Uh, so it all depends. Some people like to wager. Uh, maybe they'll do a big uh, bet on the point spread itself, maybe not 500000 like that one customer, but a decent bet. Or some people might take $100 and spread it around on a variety of proposition bets. Uh, that's also a, a popular way to bet it. But it just depends on the individual circumstance and how they like to go about it. There's some that, uh, you know, view it as a, a big opportunity to make money with all the different types of bets, like I said, with all the prop bets that we have. And there's some that just like to have fun and, and watch uh, our country's uh, biggest sporting event and have a little action on it. Yeah, give us some of the fun ones or the more interesting ones. Uh, the interesting ones, I mean, we have a lot of probably the ones that involve things that rarely happen. Uh, like a, a non-quarterback throwing a touchdown pass or an offensive lineman catching a touchdown pass. Those are the ones that I think that are interesting and, and garner a lot of attention because it's just things that don't normally happen. Uh, you know, you bring up uh, bring up some like a refrigerator Perry back when the Bears won the Super Bowl. Uh, prop bet like that, will he score a touchdown, which sort of basically started uh, the big uptick in how many prop bets are offered, and it keeps getting bigger every year. Uh, you're trying to figure out a bunch of different scenarios and a bunch of different things that we haven't done in the past to put uh, to put up bets for for this year. So, uh, you know, you can almost say that we've thought of everything, but every year you think of something different that you can do that, uh, you know, makes the game a little more fun from a wagering perspective. I'm curious, are most of the bets or all the bets domestic, or do you have people from other countries betting on this? No, all our Caesars business is in the United States, so... Uh, yeah, about 17 states as of right now, if I'm counting correctly. Uh, there's new states keep getting added on all the time. So it's at least 17 So uh, that Caesars operates in. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, just within the United States for now. All right. How many different types are you up to now? Because you said the list grows every year. So what? We got 500,000 different bets, 2,000 different types well, of bets? Like- they like to say there's uh, over a thousand to two thousand. I forget the exact number. Uh, you know, I don't really count on myself, but there's just a lot, and it's grown every single year. Like I said, uh, you know, sports betting with the legalization, uh, it's put it in a different light, uh, and, and people are just excited. You know, it's the biggest game, like I said, in this country, and so uh, the wagering. You know, people who normally don't wager, uh, you know, that that ramps up uh, when it comes to Super Bowl. So. Uh, like I said, it's year after year, just more and more. And I always think that, oh, we've reached it. There's nothing else we can do. But then again, people come up with different ideas. Hey, let's do this. Let's do this. And, uh, you know, we try to put a line on it. So, uh, you know, I've been doing this for years. So, uh, you know, like I said, I think it, you know, there's just more and more and more ways we can try and incorporate different types of bets. So we'll, we'll do them as, until we, we can't think of, a, <laughs> think of any anymore. Someone's going to get really rich on some random. Adam Poland, Assistant Director of Trading for Caesars Sportsbook. Actor, comedian Mike Epps. You've seen him in movies and on TV. He played Ice Cube's cousin in the two Friday sequels and currently stars in the Netflix sitcom The Upshaws. He's in L.A. during this Super Bowl week for a comedy show. It's tomorrow. Mike Epps presents Hollywood Comedy Bowl at the TCL Chinese Theater. He's with us now. Mike, welcome to In-Depth Chinese Theater. Nice place to have a show. Fun place to have a show. Who's coming? Oh, man, I got T.K. Kirkland. I got uh, Dominique, comedian Dominique. I got Desi Banks. I got a nice group of guys, man. A nice female guy doing a G-thing. Um, so, so we just put a, put together a quick little show, man. You know, people are in town looking for something to do before the Super Bowl. So we're gonna make sure we 
put up a little something. So this is like basically a, kind of a warm-up act for the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, you know, it's a lot of people in town right now. And they're looking to do something, looking to get into something. But it ain't nothing going on until the weekend, so put a little something up, you know? Yeah, good timing. Uh, and there's still tickets for people to go and get, get them? Still a couple tickets. Still a few tickets. <laughs> The, uh, tell us a little bit about the show, too. For, for people who may not have seen it, uh, it's on Netflix. Uh, you're going for a second season, are you? Yeah, it's called The Upshaws, me and Wanda Sykes. So um, go check it out on Netflix. It's a family show based out of Indiana, my hometown. So uh, you should enjoy it. Yeah, and what's it like working with, with Wanda? Pretty cool. Wanda's pretty cool people to work with. For, the, for people who are not familiar with the show, though, uh, give us a kind of a Cliff Notes version. Uh, it's loosely based off my life, set in the middle of America, a uh, black family, a working class family. Uh, my wife uh, is Wanda Sykes' sister, and Wanda Sykes is a owner of a... Of a uh, mechanic shop that I run so it's kind of like Red Fred Sanford he's on Esther I'm Red (laughs) so that is uh, are are you filming season two now and you've already had a few specials on Netflix so you've known these guys for a while yeah 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 I do stand up specials for them all the time but this is my uh... yeah this is my uh... You know, Mike, you know, I'm curious because we've had some other uh, comedians on the show since the pandemic started. And I'm curious for you as a performer, has have things changed? And I don't mean just, you know, people with masks in the audience. Does it do you feel like any kind of a different burden on you to make people laugh in these very difficult times for many people? Yeah, but, you know, I try to. I try to be normal, man. I try to think normal, even though things aren't normal. I try to think normal so that, uh, you know, people can have a good time. Yeah. I don't want to, you know what I mean? Well, that must be super refreshing, right, for the crowd, because obviously it hasn't been a great time for everybody for the last couple of years. But now that you can have shows again and get an audience together and kind of, you know, things are getting better, hopefully, but at least that escape for a couple hours, people like that. Yeah, you got to do it, man, nowadays. You got to find an escape. So how psyched are you about the Super Bowl? I mean, I'm pretty psyched, man. You know, I'm pretty happy for these two teams, man. You know, I really get tired of seeing the same people in the Super Bowl every year, basketball <laughs> yeah. and football. So. A whole bunch of America being like, yes, we agree. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but are, you, like, are you pulling I, for the Rams? Uh, no. <laughs> you're not? Oh, no. okay. Okay, you're not. Explain that one. <laughs> well, I'm a Midwest guy. I'm from Indiana. So, oh, okay. of course, I'm going to I'm yeah. go with Ohio. I'm we'll give him a right break for that door. one. Yeah. All right, you get a pass on that. Okay, yeah, got it. He gets the pass. <laughs> um, what do you, you know, everybody's got material they're either working on, or they've got jokes that they know that they can go to and that's going to be part of the act. What do you like to do when you're on stage? What do you like to riff on? I like to riff about 
Uh, I talk about fat vegans and, you know, stuff like that. Wait, wait, fat fat vegans? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, what's what's wrong with, I'm not a vegan, but what's wrong with fat? He doesn't understand how it happens. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, how did you, yep, well, that's true if they're a vegan, but maybe they just eat a lot of vegan stuff. Yeah, well, they claim they're not eating anything, but they're eating something. <laughs> what do what do you think? What do you think they're eating? How are they sneaking it in? Yeah, that, something's going on here. <laughs> you think they're running out for like a hamburger when nobody's noticing? Something is going on. I can't quite put my finger on it, but you know it. It don't it don't match up with what they're claiming. I can tell you that. <laughs> yes, this is false advertising. All right. Um, so Chinese theater, and this is uh, tomorrow, right? Tomorrow night. Yeah. All right. And where where do we get tickets? I don't know where to get the damn tickets. At. They just <laughs> told me to, told me to call and Google. promote the show. We'll, I don't we'll get know on Google. <laughs> It's called Mike Epps Presents a Hollywood Comedy Bowl at the uh, TCL Chinese Theater. Mike, thanks for talking to us. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at uh, same time, 1 p.m. And traffic in just a minute.